In Ephesians 4, verse 4, it says, There is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, verse 5, Ephesians 4, one faith, one baptism. And it says in verse 6, One God and Father of you all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And this month we're going to be celebrating the one and only Son of God who was sent to this earth to live as a man, 33 and a half years or so, and to lay down his life for the sins of the world. And through the faith that we have in God's Son, Jesus, we're connected and unified as His body, the body of Christ, His church. And we know there is only one body and one Holy Spirit and one hope of our calling, which is Jesus. One Lord and one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, each of us are very unique. And isn't that a fascinating thing? You know, I was speaking with my mother-in-law about this just a few days ago or so, about all the billions of people that have lived in this world, and every single one of them was unique. I mean, we must confess that some of us uh, may be a bit more interesting than others in a good or maybe not so good way, but we all have unique gifts and things that the Lord has blessed us with to serve their unique purpose in the body of Christ. And those gifts are actually part of God's grace to you for those around you. If you remember our series that we had earlier on in this letter to the Ephesians where uh, we entitled it, God's Grace for Me, for You. And this applies in the sense that God has given us spiritual gifts and things that, that He has specifically and uniquely given to you as an individual that are to be used and utilized for the furtherance of His work here on this earth. And we are going to see more about that in next week's study about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7 it says, but to each one of us, this is Ephesians 4, it says, but to each one of us was given according to, uh, each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I was thinking about this even as recent as five minutes ago before I was walking on stage, and I thought, if it were not for God's grace, where would I be? If you think about that honestly right now, sitting in your seat, if it were not for the grace of God, where would you be? What would our lives look like? What would our marriages look like? What would our families look like? By God's grace, we are who we are today. I really believe if it were not for the grace of God working in our lives, there would not be any of us sitting here right now. Every single one of us have been given God's grace. His unmerited favor, His blessing, these things that have come from Him that we do not deserve. You know, where we should have been, when we should have been cast off, like you have blown it too many times, I am done with you. I have had it. I am out of here. You have sinned too much. You have said you're sorry too much. But if it were not for God's grace, we would be lost. And sometimes I just stop and say, thank you, God, for having so much grace for me. Because I need it, and without it, I would have been consumed by my failures and by my problems. Wouldn't you agree that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be lost? 
Christ's gift that we just read in verse 7, laying down His life for my sins and for your sins, our sins, was a gift that we did not deserve. Talk about the ultimate humiliation to be God, to humble yourself, take the form of a man confined by the physical universe to be born in a stable, laid in a manger in an oppressed country that was under the rule of Rome to work as a carpenter under his father Joseph and as he grew to be the man that God had sent him to be, persecuted, came to his own, his own did not receive him. Eventually he'd be betrayed and he would lay down his life for the sins of the world. And when I think about that, especially during Christmas time, I'm standing here behind this pulpit very, very thankful. I look back on my life and I don't know why, but I'll have these periods uh, that I would call nostalgic moments, and, and I'll think back at certain things, and I look back at my life, and I've realized that I've probably, that I probably should have been dead with all the crazy things that I used to do when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Like, I should have died so many times, and probably more than I even realized, I mean, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Like, we're the, <laughs> we're, we, how are we alive today? By God's grace. Praise the Lord for His unmatchable grace to us. So to each of us, God has given us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we are going to see more about that, as I mentioned earlier, later on this month. But I just have one point for you today, because what we're going to be looking at today has confused people. It has been viewed as very obscure. Uh, it, it is also a very, very powerful passage of Scripture that ties up a lot of loose ends and from things that are mentioned in the Gospels and to uh, who we know God to be, who Jesus is, what heaven is, what hell is. Uh, how are you righteous before faith in Christ? What happened to you? Uh, did you go to heaven? What happened if you were unrighteous before Christ? What happens after Christ if you die? There are a lot of things that are going to be answered in this one point that I have entitled, Jesus Ascended and Descended. Jesus Ascended and Descended. And we're going to only be looking at verses 7 through 10 this morning. But I'd like to lead off with this question. Have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? I mean, some of you are like, Creed? Wait, you mean is this number one or number two that's in theaters right now? No, not that creed. It's not the secret apostolic club of fisticuffs. No, that's not what he's talking about. The apostolic creed. I'm referring to as it is referred to in Latin, the Symbolum Apostolicum. How's that? It's the Latin creed that says, uh, I mean, it's the Apostles' Creed that says this, and I quote, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. End of quote. Now, if you've ever heard that, maybe you've memorized it, maybe you've heard it referred to, the Apostles' Creed was actually not written by the Apostles. You might think, what? How could it be called the Apostles' Creed? No, rather, it's a summary of their foundational key teachings into one concise statement. So the believers took all the teachings of in the early church of the apostles and put them into something that they could profess. These are the things, because when you go down the list of things, you know, in the early church, there were a lot of false teachers that crept into the church. Paul addresses many of them in his letters about false teachers. And so the thing that that was to help them was to say, I believe in one God, because that's what the Bible says, who sent his only son who died. He wasn't just swooning and, you know, his disciples carried him out, you know, as, as some have theorized. Uh, we believe that he was truly dead, that he truly rose again. We believe that he's coming again. We believe all of these things, the virgin birth, etc. Now, when you heard me read this, or when you've read this previously on your own, there may have been a couple things that stood out to you. You're tracking, okay, yeah, 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 and then you're like, wait, what? And then you're reading, yeah, wait, wait, what? One may have been Jesus descended into hell. That probably caught some of your attention. I didn't know Jesus descended into hell. Did Jesus descend into hell? And then the second thing that may have caught your attention, especially coming from a Protestant church, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, Catholic in this context means the true universal church. You know that's what the word Catholic means, universal. And so here it's talking about not the belief system, but but rather that there is one true church, the body of Christ. As we believe and as the Bible teaches us, that is what is being referred to here. Now, Jesus descended into hell. If you've ever asked that question, did Jesus descend into hell? Well, today you're going to have the answer to it. What does that mean? You might ask. What does that mean, Jesus descended into hell? Well, first off, I'd like to say I am very proud of you for asking great questions. And I'm glad that you've asked that question uh, because I'm going to tell you the answer to it. On the day of Pentecost, and this is referred to in the book of Acts when the early church was gathered together, the Holy Spirit, as you recall, came upon those believers that were in that gathering. It came upon them in such a way as was described as tongues of fire upon their heads. And they began speaking in languages that were not their own. This is called the gift of tongues. We'll talk about this more than likely next week. But the gift of tongues, where you are praising God in a language not your own. Now, some may speak in a language not their own, and somebody might say, thus says the Lord in three days or whatever. That is not an interpretation to the speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is always praises to the Lord. It's giving praises to God in a language that is not your own. And we won't go too far into that today because we don't have time for that and it's really not the point of today's message. But in Acts 2, verses 7 through 8, it says, Then they were all amazed when they heard the believers of Jesus praising 
the Lord in native tongues uh, that were native to the travelers that were visiting Jerusalem's tongue, not native to the Galileans. It says, when they heard these things, they were all amazed, saying to one another, look, not, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So the day of Pentecost, Jews would travel from all over the world to worship the Lord in the temple. They didn't just speak English. They didn't just speak Aramaic or Spanish or Portuguese. They didn't just speak part of the Germanic tribes, you know, language, Celtics uh, from the, the British side. You know, we, we saw masses of people that spoke different languages say, these guys aren't from where we are, but how are they praising God in languages that belong to our country? And they were amazed. They were blown away. Some mocked and said, man, these guys are drunk. But Peter stood up and he says, as he begins to expound on the scriptures in the Old Testament, because as you know, that in the book of Acts, the New Testament wasn't written yet. And it says in Acts 2.27, it says this, For you, Peter gets up and says in his long speech, he says in verse 27 of Acts 2, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, he's not quoting from the New Testament. As I already said, it wasn't written yet. They were writing it as they were going, so to speak. They were beginning right there in Acts. Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from the book of Psalms. And in the old King James Version, which we just call the King James Version, in Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. This is a reference to the Messiah. So now as we look at verses 8 through 10 and ask, Did Jesus really go to Hades or hell or to the lowest parts of the earth? Is the Apostles' Creed actually theologically sound? Uh, There are important questions to get answers for. And so, we see from this passage in Acts, Peter quotes in context of Jesus dying, buried, being raised again on the third day. Because that was true, What Jesus said also would be true, which the Holy Spirit would come upon the believers. And that's why they were able to praise the Lord in languages not their own. Those were gifts of the Holy Spirit to those believers. Peter is quoting an Old Testament passage referring to the Messiah. And so now when you look at verse 8 of Ephesians 4, you'll have a little bit of an understanding of what we're about to get into. Therefore, he says... When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, verse 10, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so if you're reading that, With us today, if you're watching this online or checking this on an archive sometime in the future from when this was recorded, you might just be wondering to yourself, what exactly does that mean? 
What does that mean? He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. I mean, I like that give gifts to men part. Um, Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he first descended and then he was in the lower parts of the earth. And then what does this mean? Well, listen, Jesus told the people that were looking for a sign as is recorded in Matthew 12, verses 39 through 40. They're like, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. I mean, they were saying that way before Britney Spears ever sang about it. 1239, verse and 40, it says, He answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Some people question whether Jonah ever existed. That kind of goes out the window. Jesus refers to Jonah. Some people say, well, I don't think Jonah ever was swallowed by a big fish. That kind of goes out the window with what Jesus says in verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights and the nights, uh, nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Huh, interesting. And as you know, after Jesus gave up the Spirit, He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He laid down his life for the sins of the world. He was laid in a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And while his body was in that tomb, we know from Scripture that some pretty cool things took place during that time. And so I'm going to ask that you would please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. You're going to be doing some finger calisthenics today as we look at this passage. Usually, I will share with you the cross-references And they're usually just a handful of them at a time. But there is a big passage that we need to look at as a church together. And so I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles. If you do not know where Luke is, it is the third book over in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, then Luke. If you don't know where chapter 16 is, you are on your own. Comes after 15 is a little hint. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, this is Jesus speaking. How do you know? Well, it says. How do you additionally know? Well, because it's in red. Okay, so there you go. In verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried, verse 22, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. You think, how awful is this? In verse 27, he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send 
him who, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. And it says in verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You can turn back to Ephesians 4. Now, I know in your mind's eye, you started picturing what this may have looked like. I think it's the natural thing for our brains as we're processing information to start putting images and pictures and sounds and feelings to what may have been going on in this particular situation that Jesus has described. The thing that's fascinating about this is this place called Abraham's bosom. This place where seemingly the righteous would go that would be a place of comfort. And then we see a place of torment that was for those that were unrighteous. And then there was a gulf fixed between the two so that you couldn't travel between the two. Now, there are a lot of things that you can gain from this passage, and I'm going to pull just a few things as side notes, and then we'll get back into the meat of what we're looking at today, is that the man that was in the place of torment called out to Abraham and said, send Lazarus back to warm my family. After he asked, hey, can you just touch his finger in water and touch my tongue because I'm in torment here? He said, no, send him back. And then Abraham, you know, said something that was very fascinating. He said, they have the law and they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Well, if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. Interesting, because we know that Jesus came back from the dead. And people still choose not to believe. We've even been given now in our generation the New Testament, which is the story of the early church and Christ and the Pauline epistles and the book of Revelation. We have a ton of things that we've been given now as the church has grown. And people still choose to not believe. People choose to reject what God's Word says. But there is a reality that there is a place of comfort after this life and that there is a place of torment after this life. And so what do we learn from this passage of Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31? What do we learn about this passage in Luke regarding those that died before Jesus' resurrection? Have you ever wondered if the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to cover man's sin? And that it wasn't until after Jesus laid down His life on the cross paying the ultimate price for the sin of mankind, making passage to heaven open, what happened to people before Jesus' death? What happened to those that were righteous? I mean, you think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and and then we go to Barak and Samson and these guys that were the judges of Israel. Deborah, etc. It's fascinating. 
But let's point out a few things from this passage in Luke. Number one, Hades was a place that was separated into two different compartments. There was one of torment for the unrighteous and one of comfort for the righteous. Number two, we see that there was a gulf fixed between the two compartments that could not be crossed over, that once you were in one, you didn't make it to the other side. Number three, there was, and this is conjecture on my behalf, there was at least a one-way window in the sense of those being tormented could see those that were being comforted and could communicate. We don't know if you as a visitor in Abraham's bosom could see across to the other side. I don't know how comforting it would be to see people in torment on the other side. I think that would be very uncomfortable. But we do know from the text, now back to what is not conjecture, that Abraham could communicate and more than likely see from what we read in the text. So it's a very interesting place. Hades, two departments, one for torment, one for comfort. We know the one for comfort was called Abraham's bosom. So, question, who were those that were righteous and made it to Abraham's bosom? Those that died before Jesus' death on the cross went to one of two places. One of two. Even now, those that die after Jesus go to one of two places. Now, we already established that there was a place of comfort and a place of torment. So, those that were unrighteous were condemned, and those that were righteous were comforted. So, that is the difference between the two. If you were unrighteous, you're condemned. If you're righteous, you are comforted. And those that were righteous are those that were referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. This is a whole overview of the Bible, and there's a lot of threads coming into the same point here. 1139 of Hebrews, it says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. What? What promise? Who were the these? Well, you can look in Hebrews chapter 11 and go down the list, but the these were the men of faith listed previous to verse 39 in Hebrews 11. And they're listed in this part of the Bible called the Hall of Faith. They were men such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and more. And these were men and women that believed the promises of God and their faith was accounted to them as righteousness. Remember, we went through this about the difference between faith and works, earning your way and believing your way. Today is the same. Your faith in Jesus is what saves you. Your faith in the promises of God saves. The same thing applied for those that were before Jesus. Faith in the promises of God were accounted to them as righteousness. So those that were righteous before Christ went to Abraham's bosom and those that were unrighteous went to the place of torment. And as I just read in Hebrews 11.39, those that were righteous had a fantastic testimony through their faith, but they did not receive the promise. 
What was the promise? The Son of God who would pay the price for the sins of the world. They believed in the promises of God and they did not see them. They died not seeing the promises of God, yet they still believed. Their faith was accounted to them as righteousness. And so now you're fast forwarding thousands of years since Abraham had died, since Moses had passed, since Gideon had left this earth, and now, boom, at the appointed time, God sends His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And therefore, he says back in Ephesians 4, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, verse 9, Ephesians 4, he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Isaiah 61, verse 1, says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This passage in Isaiah is a reference to the mission of the Messiah. And isn't it very fascinating that when Jesus was asked to read in the temple that He was handed the scroll and of all the things in the Old Testament that He could have read, guess what He read? It's Isaiah 61 recorded for us in Luke 14 verses 17 through 18. It says, And as Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, when He opened the book, He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Listen as if Jesus was reading this. You're sitting there in the temple and Jesus opens this passage of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach to the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When Jesus died, His Spirit descended into Hades. You might think Jesus went to hell. He went into the side for the righteous. Those that were there were those that by faith were waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled through the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like when Jesus arrived to those waiting there in Abraham's bosom, paradise. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about what Jesus' conversation with the thief crucified next to him was when it's recorded for us in Luke 23, 42 through 43, the thief said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. So Jesus descended to lead the captivity captive. And so we read, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered 
under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Interesting. In verse 10 it says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, in what is referred to as Hades, we know that prior to Jesus there were two compartments. One for those that were righteous and they were comforted. One for those that were unrighteous for they were condemned. In verse 10, we see that he who descended is also the same one who ascended into heaven and will come again soon. So, even as Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that because of what it says in Acts, that Jesus ascended into heaven and that he'll come again for us. In Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, Jesus said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Interesting. And it says in verse 9 of Acts 1, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, Jesus was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why are you looking up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What is that going to be like when Jesus comes in the clouds with great power and glory? Even as you saw him go up, the same way he's going to come back to this earth. See, the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the grave, sets us up for the greatest present of all time. The work that Jesus did on the cross provides us with the gift of salvation. Remember, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to see that grace that was given to you and to me Work itself out through the gifts of the Holy Spirit working in the church, working in this world through His sons and daughters. That means you and me. He led those that were captive. Into eternal life. He leads those that have been captured by sin into the captivity of the Holy Spirit, never to leave them or forsake them. Jesus left His throne above and became a man, humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross, and because of it, it says that God has highly exalted Him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
And so as we look at this obscure passage of Scripture today, I feel like we needed to understand fully what this gift of salvation means. And we play it out every single day. As God forgives us of our sins, as we're given grace when we don't deserve it. As we see the Lord working through His Holy Spirit. And even working in our understanding of God's Word. So when we read stuff that says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this He ascended, what does it mean that He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? You're thinking, what is that about? He who descended is also the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And then next week, we're going to read, and Jesus Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we're going to see some amazing things in next week's study as we conclude now ours for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We ask, God, that You would please have Your hand upon Your church and upon Your people. We thank You, Lord, for the work of the, the work that You did on the cross, Lord. We thank You, Father, for sending Your only Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, that we wouldn't have to go to a place of torment and condemnation, but Lord, that we might be comforted and be with You forever as You have gone to prepare a place for us that where You are, we may be also. Thank You, Jesus, that You are the way, You are the truth, and You are the life. And that we come to the Father through You. And so Lord, I pray today that as we observe communion and remember how all of these things that we have been blessed with have been provided for us, I ask that, Lord, You would help us as a church to do some soul-seeking today. If we have confession of sin, that we would confess it to You, Lord, before we partake in communion. Lord, if there are those that have walked away from You, that they would come back to You today and say, Lord, I've sinned. Would You forgive me, God? And Lord, I thank You that You tell us in Your Word, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Lord, I pray that in these closing moments of our service today and as we take communion, that this would be a time of just the washing of Your Holy Spirit, the rejuvenation of Your Holy Spirit at work, Lord. We ask that this would be a time of reflection, a time of confession, a time of requesting strength, a time of praising You for Your grace. And Lord, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.